What a joy to be back here at your beautiful church and listen to your beautiful singing. You folks like to sing. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, I can tell. You like to sing. There's going to be a lot of singing in heaven, so you're going to be on. They're probably going to put you on the front row of the choir or something. Uh, you've had a lot of practice. You enjoy singing. It's a joy for Ruth and I to be back with you for these days of revival. Uh, revival has always been an interesting subject to me. I've held a lot of revivals. I've been in a lot of revivals, probably hundreds of them now. But uh, sometimes we take that word pretty lightly, don't we? Uh, we advertise our fall revival. Now, that's a shock in the system to people who are historians of revival. They, wouldn't, they, would, they would sort of roll their eyes if you said to them, oh, we're having, you mean you've got it advertised on a sign and it's on a brochure? We're having fall revival. And their response would be, how can you manipulate God like that? And all of a sudden you're going to have revival because you advertised it? Well, we know what we mean, and, uh, but they're looking at it from a little different perspective. But uh, you don't need to rule out the way they look at that because revival is a remarkable, amazing event when God chooses to step in and do something really unusual and really supernatural. And so I don't know about you, but uh, I take this sort of responsibility fairly seriously and been praying about it and, and trusting God to do something for us uh, in these days together. But now on Sunday and then on through, uh, was Wednesday through Wednesday. And uh, so let's, let's, let's just pray to that end that God will help us. I want to turn your attention, invite you to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Our, our framework, our biblical framework for understanding revival comes primarily from the Old Testament. Those are the passages that we tend to go to when we talk about revival. And there's a good reason for that. The church is the new Israel and the old Israel is passed away and we are God's new Israel is what the New Testament tells us. And... Uh, so we see revivals in the nation of Israel. And I want to take one of those revivals or renewals as a pattern and talk to you a little bit about tonight. Now don't let this big black notebook scare you. It's full of pages and I always have lots to say. You can ask my wife. And I have a full message on revival. But as I was sitting there on the front seat, God seemed to whisper to me, he says, there's one simple point I want you to get across tonight, and that's it. So all of those who are hoping for an hour-long sermon, you're going to be disappointed. Those who are hoping for something less, I hope you'll be somewhat satisfied. But there's one thing I want to get across, and it's extremely important. I hope the Holy Spirit can sort of zero it in on your heart, like an arrow shot from a bow. I hope it can lodge there, and you can get a hold of it, and take it to heart, and follow up. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the book of Judges closes with that solemn statement that 
Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was in chaos. No authority, no, no open vision from the Lord, no message coming from God, no word from the Lord. Things were very, very silent. When you open up the first pages of 1 Samuel, the first glimmer of hope we get is out of the, out of the prayers of a woman named Hannah who was barren, which is always sort of a type of the church. She was barren and begging God for a child. She ends up in the temple at one of the feast days and, and her husband Elkanah is there offering, but she's in the temple praying to God and she's so broken and so burdened, she's just moving her lips. She's not even speaking openly or verbally or audibly. Eli, the old priest. Eli, the priest who, as far as we know, was not an evil man or a wicked man in the sense that he was doing something he shouldn't be doing, but the problem with Eli is what he wasn't doing. Eli was not constraining the sins of Israel, and particularly those in his own house. The Bible Bible doesn't waste words, and it simply says about Eli that he was old and fat. He's not making fun of obese people. He's describing a man who had gotten lazy, a man who was just literally indulging himself in the sacrifices and all of the benefits of the priesthood. And he had just, he had, he had just sort of grown apathetic. He was not speaking out and standing against and raising his voice and calling Israel to God. His sons were running amok. They were having sex with women right inside the temple. They were robbing people of the offering, robbing God of His part of that special offering. That's the spiritual condition in the temple. Can you imagine what the trickle-down effect of that was across the country? Well, we get a little glimpse. God was being trivialized. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. This... The the revealed word of the Lord meant nothing. God was being just trivialized. Truth was being compromised on every hand. Covenants were broken. Idols were embraced. Sensuality abounds. Well, you'd think it was America 2023. But Israel was paralyzed against her enemies. And as I said earlier, Israel is, is a forerunner of the church. She was running and hiding from the Philistines, the the arch enemy of the people of God. They were paralyzed. That's the condition they were in. Can you imagine having to hide the process of threshing wheat so that someone wouldn't steal it? It was an unbelievable day in the life of Israel. But something happened. When you move over into chapter 7, as you know, the ark had been stolen. They bandied the ark around like it was a rabbit's foot and they sent it out into battle. The Philistines stole the ark. Eli's sons were slain. And as you know, when the news came back, the old priest fell backward and broke his neck and died. And God wiped out the house of Eli in one afternoon stroke. But chapter 7 it begins to turn around. 
chapter 7, verse 1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab. As you know, the Philistines had it. It was causing chaos and they, they put it on a cart and sent the thing back home said, this can't handle this. They sent it back. And so it shows up. And so the men of Kerijath-Jerim came and they took the ark. They brought it into the house of Abinadab that was obviously on a hill. And they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, you can see how neglectful Israel was. They didn't even try to go get the ark. And here's verse 2, it picks up. So it was that the ark remained in kerijath Jerem a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and then put away your foreign gods and asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord. Serve Him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bales and the asterisks and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Let's bow our heads for just a moment of prayer. Father, we're grateful to you tonight for these few moments that we can sanctify and close ourselves in together. We know that your spirit has promised to be with us where two or three are gathered in my name. There I will be in their midst. We know you are here. Lord, we pray that you will make yourself known and manifest your presence through the spoken word, but also in the hearts and minds of those that are listening. Anoint your servant to preach the word. We're powerless without you. We're helpless without you. Set our tongues on fire for the glory of God. But Lord, open up the ears of those who sit in this congregation. Shake off the busyness of the day, the lethargy of the hour, the apathy of the moment. Shake it off from them and make their hearts open to hear your word and receptive to your word. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen. Israel experienced a moment of revival. Revival really isn't something new in America. We've actually had, most scholars would say, we've had at least three great awakenings. Some say six, but at least three. We've had localized revivals, such as you heard at Asbury College just some months ago and They had another move of God in 1970, but what you didn't hear, there were many moves of God across America in the 1970s. God has been working, God has been busy, but we call those sort of a local revival. But America has had three significant moves of God in the 1740s, 
George Whitfield came and preached in the streets of Philadelphia, backed by Jonathan Edwards. The move of God was so powerful in Philadelphia that Benjamin Franklin wrote about it. And here's what he said. He said, when George Whitfield stood to preach in the streets of Philadelphia, the streets were clogged and packed with thousands. He said, I stood on the edge of a crowd of 25,000 people listening to him preach. He said, God so moved in Philadelphia. There was so much turning to God in Philadelphia. He said, after that revival, when you would walk the streets of the city at night, you normally heard singing and drinking and all sorts of horrendous things. He said, but that was hushed. And you heard the singing of psalms and the praying of prayers in the homes that lined the streets of the city. God shook New England with a great move of God. There was another move of God, and we called it the Second Great Awakening. That happened in the 1790s, early 1800s. Lasted for about 30 years. The fire would go from place to place. During the Count Meeting movement, really, there was a great move of God. Charles Finney, Peter Cartwright, the the, the Cane Ridge Revival, sometimes it's referred to as the very first count meeting that took place in America, Cane Ridge, Kentucky. I've been right there. Those who witnessed that moving of God at Cane Ridge, the Presbyterians got together to have a sacramental meeting. They were going to have a communion service, three days of sacramental meeting and communion. But they said revival broke out. The Presbyterians hardly knew what to do with it. But the Methodists came in. And they sort of, the Presbyterians wouldn't let them in the church, but the Methodists got into tree branches. They stood on stumps. They climbed trees, stood on limbs, and they preached to the masses. 25,000 people gathered in that little spot. They said the roads were clogged with wagons for miles and miles. 10% of the population of the state of Kentucky at that time turned out, and God saved thousands and thousands of Kentuckians and all the people during that period of time, as well as other places. And then there was the third great awakening. And actually, that's the roots of where you and I come from. In the late 1800s, there was another move of God. We call it the revivalist period. That's when the holiness movement was born in great revival fire. And actually, out of that moving of God in that birth, that's where, that's where our roots are, your roots, my roots. They're in that moving of God in that revival meeting. Someone said, why in the world? Someone asked Billy Sunday one time, they said, they said, why in the world do you have a revival anyway? It doesn't last. He turned to her and said, why do you take a bath? It doesn't last. Well, I know that that was a little bit of a poke and a jest, but he makes a point. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you're honest with your own soul tonight, there is a tendency to drift and to move and to let up and to slack up in your own spiritual fervor and fire. We need renewings. Revival is like every every relationship. Our Christian relationship with God is like all relationships. I uh, forget the name of our wonderful choir director. Help me out. Do I? Oh, Justin. Okay, Justin. I I assume you're married? Yeah. Thought so. 
Mrs. Justin. How long have you been married, Justin? 22 years. Did you get it right? <laughs> oh, now that's the first. That's the first for me right there. 22 years. And a half. He must be a mathematician or something. 22 and a half years. Well, Ruth and I have been married for 45. And I want to tell you something. <clears throat> Marriage is a little bit like a tub of hot water. It'll cool off. And there has to be moments of renewing in those relationships. And if you haven't invested in that, and you haven't spent some time in renewing, connecting, and reconnecting, you know exactly what will happen. Over a period of years, you drift apart. You live under the same roof. You may sleep in the same bed, sit on the same pew, but you've become two different people occupying the same space and time. But the intensity, the romance, the love, it's it's not there. And that's why we need revival. It's like any other relationship. You and I need occasionally the stirrings and movings of God We need those moments of humbling ourselves in His presence and going down in repentance and saying, God, my heart has grown cold. Please rekindle the fire on the altar of my heart. The one thing that I want to leave with you, and I promise that's true, just one. The one thing I want to leave you that is crucial to what we do this week It's crucial to any revival. It's found in the very last sentence of verse 2. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Revival is always birthed out of deep spiritual hunger. The greatest enemy of revival is apathy. We just don't really care. Oh, we talk about it. We know the language. We all have church speak. We know how to say it. We know how to sing about it. We heard some amazing songs tonight. We were challenged by our worship leader to put ourselves into... We all know that language and know how to articulate it very well. That's one thing. It's another thing to back it up with a sense of brokenness and hunger and thirst after God. In the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. We don't have a clue even what hunger and thirst means. Oh, I know, I know. Some of you teenage boys came in and told your mother you were starving to death. You weren't. You know nothing about hunger. The word that Jesus used there for hunger is the same word that's used when he'd been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and had fasted the entire time. And the Bible says, and afterward he hungered. It's the word that's used for a man dying from lack of nourishment. He hungered. The word thirst there is the the same Greek word that was used when Jesus hung on the cross and said, I thirst. Completely dehydrated. We're talking about passionate, desperate hunger and thirst for revival. There's a great misery that grows up in the absence of God 
in the heart of His people who truly hunger and thirst for Him. No, I don't mean contentment, and I mean a great misery. God wants to be wanted, and He will go where He's wanted. If He's not wanted, He doesn't bother to show up. He wants to be wanted. He longs to be wanted. And every time Israel lamented after the Lord, God stepped in and corrected situation. Go back when Israel was in Egypt and it says, and they cried unto the Lord. That's an interesting Hebrew word. They were desperate to break the bondage of slavery. They cried to the Lord. And here Israel is lamenting after the Lord for the time was long. Some of you have read the story of the revival of the Hebrides, those little islands off the shore of Scotland. On Lewis Island there was Peggy and Christine Smith, two old sisters, maidens that had never married and they gave themselves to prayer and to the work of God on the island. Peggy is now 89 and and, uh, Christine is somewhere close to that in her 80s. One is legally blind and the other is just literally almost bent double with arthritis. But every Friday night, every Friday night, all night, they prayed for revival on Lewis Island. They said... That no one was coming to church anymore. The young people, the teenagers were abandoning God in record numbers. You look around the church, there was hardly a teenager to be found. And every Friday night for years, they prayed all night, Friday night. Cold, bitter winds blowing off the ocean. They had those little peat fires and they had... Hurry around the fire, cuddle around the fire, and they would pray through the night. In the 50s, late, early 50s, as they were praying through the night, God spoke to Peggy Smith. And He said, I will pour water on him that is thirsty. I will pour floods upon the dry ground. Shortly after God spoke those words to her, God gave her a vision of the church house. She saw the church absolutely packed with people. She sent word to the preacher. She said, God assured me tonight we're going to have revival. She said, I want you to send for Duncan Campbell. I believe he's the man of God that should be preaching in the meeting. And they sent after Duncan Campbell. And after a long, make a long story short, he finally was able to get there. And he began to preach. If you know the rest of that story, a hundred thousand souls were swept into the kingdom of God in the revival of the Hebrides. Fifty thousand were teenagers. Marvelously converted. You say, that's long, long ago and far, far away. I was a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy. We lived on the edge of the National Forest you go to a map of Alabama, you can find the Oak Muggy National Forest. You won't find the name of Friendship Community because it ain't on the map. We didn't have any street lights, stop lights. It was our house on a hill, the church across the road, my grandmother in a far pastor far away, and our neighbor in the other direction. That's about it. 
at a big, big national forest. Hardly anybody in the community left, but we had a handful of people. We had people that attended that church. Of course, in, I don't know if the South may be like the North, the North may be like the South. You know, people go to church. Everybody goes to church. You're religious. We had, everybody went to church. We had members of the KKK sitting there on the, the back pews. Oh, yeah. We had one old lady who was a maiden school teacher. She had kind of been the community prostitute for years. You're talking about a box of rocks. That's about what it was. But somewhere in that period of time, a few years earlier, my mother got so hungry for God. She called a neighboring church about 25 miles away because she knew there were some old women over there that knew how to pray. She called that pastor and she said, would you load up those old women? And you're, you would laugh at their names, Ain't It and Ain't Nanny and Sister Vera, Miss Lolly. said, would you bring them over here? God is stirring and convicting my heart. I want to be a Christian. He brought those old women over and my mother prayed clear through and was wonderfully, gloriously saved. My mother began to walk with the Lord. And I want to tell you something, there wasn't much encouragement around. I can remember many prayer meetings. Just her and me with my school work, my school books sitting by her and the preacher. His wife didn't even come often. He was just a wonderful old meat cutter. He'd gotten saved late in life. He wouldn't have known theology from biology. He just loved God and had a big Bible and would start talking and cry. That's about it. But my mother had a hunger for God. And I watched my mother as a 10, 12, 13-year-old boy. I watched my mother out on a little farm. She'd put a meal on the table, then she'd slip out the door. I'd hurry and eat. Then I'd slip out the back door and I'd listen. And either I would hear her voice coming from behind the barn or by an old log down in the edge of the woods. And I'd scamper over there and peek around the corner. And time and time again, I saw my mother kneeling over an old trough. Tears scalding her cheeks, puddling in the, the earth below. Time and time again, I've heard her tell God, my husband is lost, my children are lost, my friends in this church are lost. If you don't help us, we're just lost. I heard that over and over and over. I actually heard it so much I became accustomed to it. But now I'm 16. And all of a sudden, no way to explain it, but all of a sudden, God just steps in that little country church. Most we ever had, probably 30, 35 on a Sunday morning. We had about a 70-year-old lady that didn't know A from B that played the piano. She started on the south end and went north. That was it. An old guy that blew a saxophone when he could hit the right note. And then just a handful of people. 
But all of a sudden, on a Sunday night, God stepped into Friendship Church. He rattled that place. And I stood there as a 16-year-old boy left over from the hippie generation, hair to my shoulders, trying my best to break the bonds of restraint, to get into everything I could get into. I stood there and watched as my sister suddenly got out of her pew and ran to the altar. My first cousin, who was a guy, and my other first cousin, who was a girl, ran to the altar. I saw people just start moving toward God. My 89-year-old step-grandfather, who had never sought God a day in his life, he couldn't run and he couldn't kneel. But he made his way to the front seat and sat down right here. And God swept through that auditorium, wonderfully saved my step-grandfather, wonderfully saved my sister and my, my, my two cousins. And another... And like any revival, you just have people who kind of move because it's a thing to do. They're, they're stirred a little bit. But God got a hold of those four. She became a lifelong missionary. My sister. The guy became, he's a Nazarene preacher today. The girl, she's the pastor's wife, a guy who's been a lifelong Baptist preacher. And my grandfather was shortly to go to heaven. But God saved him that night. It did something to that church. You said, did everybody stick? No. It's like everything else. Some come in and some ease out, but something happened. But mother was not content. She didn't let up one bit. She, didn't, she never said a word. She didn't, say God's, she didn't say anything. She just kept praying. And a year from that time, on a Sunday night, on March the 17th, 1974, I'd been trying to get out of that weekend revival. I didn't want to go. I, I, I went to a movie the night before with a girl that I had no business being with. But in my family, you might have got out of one night, but you weren't going to get out of all of them, that's for sure. And I had to go on Sunday night. And on Sunday night, I can't explain but God got a hold of me. I was standing at the back with the rest of some of the teenage boys. We, were, we weren't listening. We didn't want to listen. We just wanted to be over with. We were just hanging out in the very back, as far back as you could go. But I'll never forget when they had an invitation. I stood and something began to happen to me. Something began to speak to me. Something began to draw me. And I just stood there frozen. Now I know if this happened today, everybody would panic and get mad and probably leave church. But the evangelist saw my predicament. And he walked down the aisle, came to the pew where I was with the other boys. He reached over. He never opened his mouth. and never, He just touched me on the arm like that. That's all it took. I about ran over him to get to the altar. And I kneeled at that little altar in a little country church. And God radically changed my heart. 
There's no way to explain it except it was supernatural. God did something. He gave me a new heart. And for the last 49 years, he's had that heart 150%. The point, God wants to be wanted. Israel lamented after the Lord. How desperate are you? Well, you're beautiful looking folks. I mean, you just, I mean, you are. Can't help but like you, at least by looking at you. Never live with you, but I, nice looking folks. But how desperate are you? How desperate are you to shake off the apathy and coldness and lethargy of your own heart? How desperate are you to say this? If this is the best there is, I might as well join the Kiwanis. We can hang out with that little group. How desperate are you? Ruth and I got married in 1978 and took our first church in 1980. We had a big old four-bedroom parsonage, and we, were, we had just kids. We had, we had no furniture. We had a little bit, so we put a few sticks of furniture in the den. I had an old stereo we brought in from... Uh, for my, that was what I contributed to the marriage, a little stereo. And after the evening meal, we would go in and turn that thing on and listen to this new program out of Pasadena, California. This new guy, first time on the radio, they called him James Dobson. Focus on the family. And we'd listen to that. And one evening while we were listening, he interviewed a guy named Alan Oggs an old Pentecostal preacher, kid that was raised in a parsonage. He was actually born with cerebral palsy. He, he could never ride a bike. He could never, he could never walk. He could never put, a, put two building blocks on each other. As a matter of fact, when they took him to the doctor, the doctor said there are no, mo, no motor connections to the right side of his brain. You ought to put him in a home or pray for an early death. That's what the doctor told him. But they didn't. They prayed for God to heal him, for God to touch him, for God to use him. God never healed him. But when Alan was 16 years old, he'd been converted a few years before. When he was 16 years old, he was, everybody else had gone. His mother was standing at the sink in the kitchen. They had just finished breakfast. She was washing the dishes. As she stood there in the sink looking out the window and washing and kind of humming to herself, Alan was over at the table. Now, mind you, Alan could only walk with painful braces and these arm crutches, and he could only walk with some assistance. He could never button a button. He could never even feed himself. But sitting at that table, he said this, and I'm going to say it just like he said it for effect. I'm not making fun. I'm not, but for effect. He said to his mother, he said, Mama, God called me to preach. His mother burst into tears. She never let Alan see it. She thought, this is awful. 
My son's such a good boy. He loves the Lord. But preach? Never. I can't even understand him. How in the world could he preach? She finally controlled her emotion and she said, Oh, Alan, I know you're a good boy and I know you love the Lord, but you're mistaken, son. God hasn't called you to preach. He's got something for you, but, but not preach. Alan said, Uh, uh, mama, God called me to preach. Alan and I went through four years of Bible college, lived in a dorm, Graduated at the top of his class, married one of the prettiest girls on campus. And when Dobson was interviewing, he had three lovely daughters. They had traveled, they'd traveled all over America preaching. His limitations were still as severe as ever. And as Dobson was interviewing him, he said this to Dr. Dobson. He said, This year I have preached. 367 times. I have sold 50,000 Suleiman tapes. I have led 253 people to the war. And then he went on to say this to Dr. Dobson. He said... Dr. Dobson, all over this country, people come up to me when I finish. And they'd say, oh, Brother Helen, I wish I could be a Christian like you. I wish I could have a prayer life like you. I wish I could win people to the Lord like you. I wish I could be a great man of God like you. He said, you, you know what I tell them? I, I tell them you can be a Good question, like me, if you want to. You just got to have the want to. Do I need to interpret the point or did you get it? All Israel lamented after the Lord. Every great move of God has been because somebody wanted him badly. Somebody needed him badly. Whatever happens this week, it will be because somebody wants him. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a unanimous verdict. It'll never be that. There's always the hanger-ons. But somebody in this congregation, somebody, can lament after him and say, God, we desperately need you at our church. We desperately need you in our family. We desperately need you in our community, our kids. We desperately need you, God. And when we draw near to God. Guess what? He draws near to us. I want you to stand.
Listen very, very carefully. This is not a generalized altar call. This this isn't a y'all come to Jesus moment. But if there's anybody here that would say, I want you to hold off on the music, please. No music. Just right now. If there's anybody here that would say, Brother Avery, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, convicted me tonight. I want to want Him. I want to be a part of a revival in this church and in my family. If there's anybody like that, here again, this is not a general call. If there's anybody like that in this building, and you can say that, I want you to walk to the front. You can kneel. You can stand. You can sit on the front seat. I don't care. But we're going to have a moment of prayer together. If there's anybody like that, if there's nobody like that, then just nobody come. But if there's anybody here that says, Brother Avery, not my brother, not my sister, it's me. Standing in need of revival. I need, I want revival in my heart. I want revival in our church desperately. I want that more than anything in all the world. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? I want revival. I need revival. I'm hungry for revival. Charles Finney said, God's not reluctant to give revival. He said, we just need to trim our sails to catch the wind of God's Spirit. We need to maneuver. We need to reposition. We need to let God blow through us and make ourselves available. I just want us to have a prayer together tonight. I'm going to lead you in that prayer. You pray. You say whatever you need to say to God, whatever you want to say to God. But what I want us to do tonight is tell God we need Him. We long for Him. We're miserable without Him. We lament after Him. Father, You see us tonight. We are naked and open and laid bare before You. There is nothing hidden from the eyes of God. You're the one who dwells in unapproachable light. There's no shadow of turning in you. There's no shade. There's no darkness. There is nothing but brilliant light. And we stand before you tonight. You see these men and women kneeling here, sitting here, standing here tonight. You see every one of us. We bring ourselves before you tonight. And you know us better than we know ourselves. You see our hearts. You see our minds. You see our thoughts afar off. You know us.
You know what we need tonight. You know where we are tonight. You know the depth of our hunger and longing for you. You know the coldness and apathies of our heart. You know everything there is to know perfectly. There's no mistaking. And Lord, I join my voice with those all gathered around this altar tonight for revival. Lord, in these days, these short few days, Wednesday through Wednesday, as we come again, night after night after night, Lord, we want you to come and meet with us. If you do not meet with us, we meet in vain. If you do not build the house, we labor in vain. If you do not watch the wall, we watch in vain. If you do not intervene, then we're wasting our time. Lord, we ask you to do your work tonight. You know those who carry the burden of this church. You know those who are passionate about the spiritual life and vitality of this church. You know them, Lord. You know them by name. You know the cries of their heart, the prayers of their heart. You know all about that. And, oh, Lord, we ask you to hear us tonight. We ask you to hear us tonight. We believe you do. We believe you look down. We believe you see us. But most of all, we believe you will respond to the cry of your children. You long to be wanted. And Lord, we desperately want you tonight. We desperately want you in these days of revival. We desperately want you in the singing. Every song that is sung by the congregation and by the choir. Every prayer that is prayed. Everything that is done. Every word that is spoken. Would you not permeate and fill it and bless it for your honor and your glory? Would you not bring a sense of your presence so so powerful on this place that when men and women walk through the door out of the parking lot, they can say, I sense the presence of God when I came through that door. They walk into this chapel and they say, God is among us. And it brings a sense of fear and trembling to sinners, a sense of rejoicing among saints, a sense of concern among the apathetic. Oh God, we, we wait on you. We long for you. And we believe tonight that you're hearing and responding. In Jesus' name, we ask it all. Amen.